Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, hello, John. Welcome to my podcast. I know we've been talking about doing this now for probably about three months, so it's great to finally uh, get the opportunity to have a chat and, uh, you know, learn what you and Conquest and is all about. So why don't we start off with... Uh, Just let the audience know, you know, what's your current professional responsibilities? Well, thanks, Richard, and thanks for the opportunity to join you at last. Um, So Conquest Capital is a business I run. Um, Its focus is on raising uh, funding for private companies um, and also helping them with mergers and acquisitions. Um, My background um, has been an investment banker for sort of 30 years. Um, And I've now got the opportunity to sort of work with uh, private businesses, helping them with strategy and also helping them with transactions, which they don't do very often um, and obviously need somebody that's sort of, uh, you know, expert and does this for a day job in what are usually sort of transformational um, times for them. Mm -hmm. And so what would be an example of a type of organisation that you might work with? Um, it could be anything from a business that's, uh, you know, relatively small, um, you know, a few million dollars, um, anything up to a family business that's a sort of 100 or $200 million, um, potentially looking to, um, you know, do a number of things. Uh, firstly, um, it might be that uh, there aren't any, uh, you know, the, the founder has grown the business, um, there aren't any children that want to sort of continue within the business, the founder wants to sell and exit and diversify and take risk off the table. And so they might want to sell. Um, And, you know, we would then go and help them sell to the, you know, the right party that's going to pay the right price on another legacy. Mm. Um, Alternatively, it might be um, a business which, you know, has a lot of opportunities to grow in its space. Uh, We might help them uh, acquire a business um, and then also at the same time fund the acquisition of that business, whether that's a combination of uh, potentially debt, maybe from banks or from other lenders um, and, and potentially sort of equity partners as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And uh, I see from your website, you've got some other people involved in the business other than you. Indeed. Uh, so uh, how, what's the sort of team makeup like? Uh, look, the team makeup is... Um, Look, par- partners that I have worked with previously, we're only a small boutique of sort of half a dozen people, mm-hmm. um, but they are people that I've worked with and have implicit trust in. Um, they're people that I've worked with in the past at uh, places like Macquarie um, and CIMB. Um, and they also share the same sort of, you know, ethics and values that I do as well in terms of, um, you, know, provide, you know, being independent, um, providing sort of conflict-free advice, um, but also, you know, having the view that, um, you know, you, you, you should be sort of open and honest mm. uh, with clients. Um, and, you know, one of my philosophies is, um, you know, if, if before you even started working with a client and they ask you a view on something, for example, the value of their business, you tell them what you think. Mm-hmm. You don't sort of sugarcoat it. You tell them what you think. And on occasions uh, I've, 
given answers to potential clients that they haven't sort of liked. You know, your business is probably not worth as much as you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't win the work. Um, but subsequently, often they found that they go to other advisors that tell them what they want to hear. Six months down the track, they haven't potentially done a transaction because, uh, you know, the views are misaligned with what the market is. And then they may come back and they say, well, we actually now want somebody that's got integrity to tell us what we don't want to hear. Um, mm. and, and then they sort of start working with you. Mm. Um, so that, that is a philosophy of ours that we, you know, we don't sugarcoat things. Um, we, we are open and transparent um, in a respectful way. Okay, great. And uh, I don't, I'm very keen to come back and uh, understand more about that later in this conversation. I understand that uh, Conquest Capital was named after where you were born. Indeed. So um, it, it is actually an interesting story which engages clients when they say, why have you called it Conquest Capital? Isn't that like a, you know, master of the universe or sort of <laughs> we're taking over the world investment banking style well, I, I think name? It's, it's great that it's got, you know, both sort of, you know, two strings to the one bow of a name really, doesn't it? Well, well, and, and look, and, and I did obviously pick it with that in mind, yeah. partly, uh, but um, it does also reflect where I come from. So, um, you know, I come from the UK um, uh, and, uh, you know, I lived in a small village sort of 50 miles north of London um, by the name of Houghton Conquest, which actually in Anglo-Saxon means um, conquest farm on the spur of a hill. Right. Um, and the village was formed in 1086. Mm-hmm. Uh, it appears in the Doomsday Book. Uh, uh, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, uh, my parents are in this show. I've got a bit of an idea about that. But I think for yeah. most people, they go, it was in a book called the Doomsday Book. Well, it, it, that's kind of like, well, what does that mean? Was it a leper colony or something? Well, look, for those that don't know, the Doomsday Book. Um, so after William the Conqueror came over in 1066 and invaded England um, and brought a lot of French lords over, one was the conquest family, as it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set up the village. They acquired a lot of land in the area or was granted the land. Um, and that was recorded in the Doomsday Book. Um, you know, primarily so that William the Conqueror could actually know who owned the land um, and they could get taxes from them. Right. So it's like the 900-year-old version of the census. In a sense. Right. In in a sense. And so so that that sort of, to my mind, was a a throwback to my heritage, Mm -hmm. you know, and where I come from, which is still very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the logo of the business as well is actually the logo of the village um, from where I come from, Howard Conquest. Um, and the, and the it, shield. The shield is that, is that, is that and it, it's actually in the local church. And, oh, the local, right. and the local church is 11th century as well. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, grown through time. Um, you know, the village when I lived there was probably a thousand to 1500 people. So a very small mm, village. Mm. Um, but in the last sort of 20 or 30 years is probably tripled in size. Yeah. Um, as uh, you know, as it's become a bit of a, a, a commuter um, sure. village for local town. Okay. It's great to have a name like that, which actually has a story behind it. Uh, why people go, oh, why did you name your business? Arate? I mean, it's a word mm. that's hard to pronounce and people don't know what it means because it gives me the opportunity to tell a story, you know, Arate, means in Greek, the fulfillment of one's full potential. And yeah. when Homer used it in the Odyssey or the Iliad, uh, it was where heroes gather to realise their full potential. And, you know, 
we are that's what we're about and it so i'd much rather that than calling it richard Triggs recruitment or john perry you know uh uh capital or something like that. i think it's cool look look I, i've always shied away from using my name at all in you know from thoughts of naming a business because mm -hmm. it's sort of very restrictive from then bringing in partners yeah. because it's very focused on who you are as an individual and it becomes a one-man band whereas you know i'm not looking to grow our business to be 30 40 50 people we mm -hmm. will always be you know a boutique of five to ten because the partners in the business roll up their sleeves and they mm -hmm. get involved in you know every transaction to bring their experience it's not about um you know, handing it off to the junior, for example, sure. and letting them run with it. Okay, well, let's come back to that. I'm excited to talk about, you know, um, being born, you know, in this uh, little town you know, on the outskirts of London. So tell us about, you know, mum and dad and your early life. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's quite a story to, to where you've gotten to today. So my, my dad, uh, so my mum has lived in the village for, oh, 50, 60 years, ever since mm -hmm. she got married. Um, my dad uh, was from originally uh, a village near Birmingham. He uh, ran away to the Navy at 13, um, spent, I think, 15 to 18 years, uh, you know, in the Navy, um, was involved in the Suez crisis uh, on, a, uh, on a destroyer, and also uh, he also served on an aircraft carrier. Um, and then, and then when he left, he joined um, a business called Vauxhall Motors, mm -hmm. um, and he was there for forty odd years until he retired. Um, you know, initially, um, and and this is one of my er very early recollections uh, was him actually coming home from there, and because uh, you know, family didn't have a lot of money, he would actually go out to the local petrol station and. Uh, you know, work there an evening um, as a second job. And so I've always had that kind of hard work ethic instilled in me um, that if you want to get somewhere, um, you need to sort of, uh, you know, you need, really need to put in. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one of the sacrifices that I remember he made, uh, you know, to actually sort of, you know, get ahead. And uh, did you have brothers and sisters? Sister, two years younger. Right. Um, and she still lives in the UK. Mum still lives in the UK. Uh, father's now, you know, uh, unfortunately uh, passed away for the, the dreaded C word um, mm -hmm. shortly after he retired. So we didn't get much of a retirement. So, I mean, yeah. that certainly readjusts your, you know, focuses. Yeah, my, uh, dad, my dad exactly the same. He retired at 60 and he died at 64. Yeah, um, yeah it, it definitely uh, causes you to take a, a real look at how you're living your life and how you might yeah. want to calibrate some of your choices. That's for sure. And yeah. so when you were at school, you know, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Um, I, I didn't know. Um, I've always been good at maths. Um, you know, one thing at an early stage I do remember though, was the uh, Australian cricket team touring England in 1975 Right. Um, I've always been a mad keen cricket player. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the seed germinated in my head that um, at that early stage, I thought that I might eventually go to Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was when I was at the age of seven. Um, you know, I, through my teenage years, I was playing cricket three times a week. Um, you know, I did 
very well at school. I was very focused on that um, and, you know, ended up at university. Um, and, you know, I, I had this sort of plan of, well, if I can get there, you know, that would be a great thing, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. So mm-hmm. it sort of uh, evolved through, you know, osmosis, um, but I didn't know the direct track on how I was going to get there. So it just sort of happened, to be honest, through um, leaving university, uh, moving into accountancy, and then having the opportunity to do a secondment. With KPMG? With KPMG. Right. Okay, great. And so was KPMG your first um, professional role after you finished? Yeah, first professional role. And um, so so before that, I made a decision... I studied a geography degree, mm-hmm. um, which sort of reinforces my, you know, um, desire to travel and understand about the world. Um, I, I went to a university called Durham, which is sort of at the other end of the country in the very north of England, mm-hmm. um, partly to, um, you know, partly because I hadn't lived away at that stage in my life. Um, it's a very different system in Australia compared to England. Um, you know, in some senses, I think it's... Um, you know, a little bit of a shame in Australia that, um, you know, my two elder kids, they effectively live at ha- live, have lived at home and gone to university in the same city. Mm-hmm. Whereas in England, you get the opportunity to um, move away, live in halls of residence, have more of a social experience. And, and the philosophy of English universities is more about educating the mind than it being vocational. Um, and so, you know, that was that was very developing in a, in a sort of a broader kind of sense of mind developing and also more social developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it sort of having lived away for three years. Um, when I came back home, um, I, I got a role at KPMG. Um, I deliberately chose not to um, take a position in London because I felt that if I moved into a, a, a slightly regional office, so a place called St Albans, which is about 30 miles north of London um, on the outskirts, um, it would give me more opportunity to advance more quickly in my profession mm-hmm. in the sense of the clients would be smaller, not as obviously large as in London, but that would mean that I could take on more senior roles within the team more quickly. And so I sort of perceived it would be better for my career development if I did that. Um, and, and that sort of worked really well for sort of four years um, and, and sort of really enjoyed that environment. But after I had qualified with my sort of accounting qualification, um, I applied for a secondment to Sydney. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to, um, you know, to, to get one for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, that so that was... I. I it's something I'd always wanted to do, but I didn't know how I was going to get here. And so when I got to Australia, as you would appreciate, I mean, it's the greatest country in the world. um, It's hard to kind of then move back. Mm. Um, You know, aside from having the family, I mean, I, I I love the culture. I love the sort of the, you know, the can do attitude. Um, It's more of a meritocracy, I think, than the UK. Um, And, you know, obviously, aside from the weather and the fact that you can play cricket and all of those kind of things, um, I, I just found it to be a very welcoming environment um, that sort of encouraged you to sort of get out of your comfort zone and uh, and, and sort of strive for success. So I, I wasn't heading anywhere. I mean, the only, obviously, the only issue with Australia from my perspective was the family was still 24 hours away. Mm. Um, 
but then but then I you know I settled down uh, family here and have never looked back and gone back and so uh we're after you left KPMG uh having worked there for essentially eight years mm. um you then went into an organization called um Beersworth for a fairly short period and after that yeah. joined Macquarie and had a very lengthy career at Macquarie yeah so so how did that all unfold for you um well it, it sort of unfolded naturally within KPMG to start with so when I was at KPMG I was leading a lot of work on consumer groups with audits of PepsiCo and places like that but then um one of, one of my bosses said to me one day um we're doing some work for a business called Wesco, which is a, a radio station operator, and they're just about to undertake a transformational acquisition. And uh, the CFO um, actually needs some help with sort of a right-hand man to do a lot of, um, you know, grunt work and analysis and that kind of thing uh, on the acquisition and then subsequently integrating the business. And that, and that was the Alberts Network. Um, and so what initially started as sort of a one-month assignment turned into a six-month secondment where I actually worked um, at Wesco with the CFO. Mm -hmm. um, and being involved in that um, environment in terms of doing um, M&A, um, you know, Bankers Trust was one of the bankers of the transaction, um, I, I just absolutely loved it. Um, you know, the excitement of working on something that was absolutely transformational to the business, um, you know, th there was a real sort of uh, buzz around that. Um, it sort of piqued my intellect in mm -hmm. terms of um, being able to create value for organisations. And so after that, I really decided that I wanted to pursue a path in investment banking. Mm -hmm. um, so after KPMG, um, I, I took a role in a boutique, uh, Beerworth and Partners, um, and worked with them for a couple of years on uh, you know, working with, uh, you know, a number of their sort of retail and consumer clients um, on M&A transactions, ACCC work, things like that. Um, and after that, um, I felt I was ready to um, go into a bigger organisation such as, uh, you know, such as Macquarie mm. um, and work within their um, investment banking team. Right. Now, my recollections as a recruiter of Macquarie was that uh, they have a very, very, very specific psychological profile uh, that people must sort of fit within in order to get a gig there. And uh, I used to work in um, uh, another recruitment firm and, you know, you, the managers would go, oh, this candidate's fantastic and they've got all the skills and all the background and, you know, they could hit the ground running and I'm so excited. Oh, they're the wrong personality. I can't hire them. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, for people who... You know, Macquarie's got this reputation as being what the millionaire machine, is that what they used to call it? It's what they've been nicknamed, yes. Right, yeah. the millionaire machine and also this very extringent psychological or personality profiling process. For people who are not familiar with that, you just explain it. Um, so, so the process you go through, I think I had, I don't know, four or six interviews um, and, and then you have a day and a half of psychological and psychometric tests. Um where they basically profile you, they ask you questions, they reverse the questions and ask them in a different way to make sure you're being consistent in your answers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're making sure they don't hire, you know, axe murderers, mm -hmm. but they want people that think outside the box, um, you know, have, you know, are prepared to sort of stretch themselves, 
um, and and fit into the profile of people that they you know that they want to hire. Isn't uh, it funny? We want people to think outside the box, but we're only going to hire people who fit inside our box. <laughs> yeah, and and look, um, I have to say, with no disrespect to any other organisation, um, that, that it, it, I've always thought of myself as fairly intellectual um you know i did very well at school um and a levels and university um but when i got to macquarie um you know th there were a lot of highly intelligent people right um and probably the most intelligent people per capita of any organization i've worked for mm -hmm. um in fact even now when i you know catch up with you know former ceos like alan moss and nicholas moore and people like that you still get intellectually scared because, you know, of working with them in the past and, mm. you know, knowing their capabilities. Mm. So um, you still got to be very much on your toes. Right. Um, and so I suppose it sounds as if uh, you're a, an advocate for the um, heavy psychological, psychometric-based recruitment process. Oh, look, I think it worked for them. Um, I mean, one, one of the interesting stories I recall my first day at Macquarie it wasn't even my first day it was like literally my first 30 seconds mm -hmm. um you know I walked in the building um and uh you know my boss met me and I expected him to you know sit me down give me some reading you know tell me what was going on give me a briefing it'd be a nice introduction to the mm. you know Macquarie and you know just gradually ease your way in um and this was at 8 30 a.m um and he's said don't get comfortable um i've booked you a 9am meeting uh you're leading a transaction to sell a business for pepsico i know you've worked with them in the past but this is the american organization um they need to sell a business you're leading it see you later right and i said oh aren't you coming out with me he said no you'll be fine um take the junior guy with you um off you go mm -hmm. and so i'm talking to the head of MA from pepsico in New York, um, and it's my first, not only my first day on the job, and not only my first hour, it's my first half an hour on the job, leading a transaction for Pepsi, and I'm going like, I didn't expect that, but that is in essence what Macquarie was like for another sort of 10 right. or 12 years. Wow. Um, you're always being stretched. Um, you, they talked about freedom within boundaries. Um, and freedom within boundaries meant that um, you're encouraged to build a business within Macquarie um, and effectively build your own business and your own franchise as long as you didn't blow the bank up. Mm -hmm. So on sort of day one of every financial year, you basically started off with zero income against your name. And, and in essence, aside from sort of regular catch-ups to see how you were going, they would come back on day six, three, six, five and say, so how much money have you made for the year? Mm. And on that basis we can pay you this much. Mm. Um, and, and so it was very, very uh, meritocracy. What's the right word? It was a meritocracy. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, the work you generated, the amount of money you made, it was kind of pure in, in, in that form. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I sort of loved it. Um, you know, some of the transactions that we worked on were, you know, incredibly complex, um, high pressured, but there was always a sense that you never felt within your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. 
um, and you were always being stretched. Um, and, and that's something that I absolutely loved. I mean, you were intellectually challenged all of the time. Um, but a lot of the things that you had to do was, um, you know, create, create your own work and your own opportunities. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and, that, and that happened in a few forms. Mm-hmm. And I note, you know, you were there for just over 11 years. Your last uh, four years as um, Executive Director and CEO of their Time and Diligence Group Fund. So what was it? I mean, you obviously loved working there. I presume you, you were well remunerated. Um, what was it that finally, mm. you know, caused you to want to step out and start to, um, you know, hang out your own shingle? Uh, look, there was an evolution within Macquarie. So, I mean, I, I headed up the consumer business in m and I did work in, uh, you know, real estate. We did some, you know, investing in, you know, uh, sort of other businesses. And, and that led to doing some work with a business called Aveo in the retirement mm-hmm. religious space. Um, uh, and, and as I mentioned, you know, you were encouraged to sort of think outside the box. And so some of the work we were doing with, a, with Aveo meant that, um, an acquisition they were pursuing didn't work up financially if they acquired it 100%. So um, I, I sort of put a structure to both them and also to um, Macquarie, being sort of Alan Moss and the leadership team, that um, we should co-invest um, in a retirement village business. Um, the whole sector was fragmented. It would be extremely interesting uh, for institutional investors to invest in. Um, potentially because of, well, potentially as a proxy for residential real estate growth, but also because of the growth in seniors housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there was a real opportunity to roll up the sector, create a number one, um, and and obviously get a good investment return for Macquarie and Avea. Um, they backed that idea with a significant check. Um, we acquired uh, a business in New Zealand called MetLife Care that mm-hmm. via takeover. That was a, a sort of a $400 million business. Um, and then we went around over the next sort of four years and rolled up a number of uh, and acquired a number of other uh, businesses. Uh, we put together a portfolio of one and a half billion. Um, I was running that portfolio, um, finding new acquisitions, finding the funding. Um, and then ultimately we set up a fund where we brought in institutional investors. Um, I then was given, uh, and, and, and as part of that, um, you know, we sort of discussed around the board table who the appropriate leader for that was. My view was that because uh, I'd spent four years doing the strategy and what I'd loosely call the banking role and pulling the business together, we then needed a front person that was more operationally focused. And so I hired uh, that person to, in essence, replace me mm-hmm. um, as, as we went to the fundraising because I felt that was right for the next stage of the business. Um, and, and then Retirement Villages Group sort of uh, it, it was sort of uh, left to run itself with me having an oversight role. Um, at that point in time, I was sort of offered, uh, how, do you, how do you put it, yeah, offered an opportunity I couldn't refuse Right. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and and that was to go and um, lead a business in Seoul in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, in essence, to use the local contacts and networks, but to bring some principal transactions through that business, which they hadn't been able to achieve because um, 
you know, some of the skills that were in head office in Sydney needed to be transplanted to Seoul. So, so these, I, this is a role within Macquarie, though? Yes, within Macquarie. Right. Okay, sure. Um, leading a business in Seoul. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent, I spent two weeks up there. Uh, of every three weeks, I spent two weeks up there and one week in Sydney mm-hmm. monitoring the Retirement Villages Group investment. Um, and that lasted sort of through 2008. Uh, and then obviously the uh, GFC hit. Mm-hmm. Um, the CEO, the Retirement Villages Group, took stress leave because um, there were some challenges with some of the covenants relating to the uh, lenders. Uh, so I stepped in um, and became CEO again um, and had to lead a refinance which involved uh, refinancing $600 million of debt. Um, Lehman's went bust in the meantime. Um, and I have to say that, uh, you know, it took me six months to do that, negotiating with four very large banks. And ultimately, we got that done. We raised some more equity. We refinanced the banks. Um, it was extremely stressful. I was thankful we were not listed so that we weren't on the front page of the Fin Review every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it really, through that adversity, taught me a lot, um, you know, about, about finance and how to set up businesses and, you know, the real focuses that you need, not just on growth, but also on risk and mitigating risk um, and matri- making sure you've got a fortress balance sheet and those kind of things. Um, and, and so that was very educational. But at the end of that process... And to come back to answering your question, um, again, at the end of that process, I felt that I had then done my role to sort of lead RBG um, out of the dark times again. Mm -hmm. But then it was again, uh, once it was stabilised, time for another more operationally focused CEO to come in and what I'd loosely call sweat the assets. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I took the view after 12 years that um, I wanted to sort of not... CEO of the Retirement Villages business forevermore. Um, I, I, I still wanted to uh, be in m and capital raising, putting together um, investment opportunities. Um, and so, you know, I decided that the best place for me after 12 years was to leave um, and work with a couple of partners post-GFC to set up a business. Um, it was pretty tough, to be perfectly honest, obviously, outside the franchise of Macquarie. Um, and, you know, the opportunities that we found were very hard to finance um, without that backing. And so I got lured back into investment banking a couple of years later to work for Royal Bank of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the evolution through there. Yeah, great. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I started. You started your business in April 2009. I started mine in February 2009. And... Uh, Probably, you know, people said to me at the time, what on earth would you do starting an executive search firm in the middle mm. of uh, the GFC? But, you know, you just make these choices. And uh, after, you know, probably nine years of seeing the highs and the lows, finally things are starting to really, you know, rock and roll. And uh, yeah. but, but there were many times I thought, oh, God, if I could just go back and get a job again, I probably would have done it in a second. And, uh, and so, you know, you did that, you went, to CIMB Group, you've come yeah. back into your own business. So I just, so just being conscious of your time, John, and I wanted mm. to make sure that. You, uh, so, so you set up Conquest Capital Group um, for the or re-established it July two thousand and fifteen. Okay, so yeah. nearly nearly six years ago. 
over that six years, what would you, what would be some of the things that you've achieved that you're most proud of? What are some key milestones during that six-year period? Oh, look, I think some of the some of the work that we have done with particular clients has been, uh, you know, some of the highlights because actually helping clients achieve their goals um, when you know they're doing trans- transactions that are transformational to them and their lives and, and seeing the outcomes that it delivers to them is, is, you know, you know, obviously the money is one thing, but like that is really, you know, special in terms of being able to sort of help them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one business, for example, early on, uh, you know, the founder, you know, wanted to leave. He'd got two businesses. Um, we were able to sell one to him, uh, you know, at, at a very good price to a, know a global you know real estate technology firm and he was then able to sort of you know take that money have less stress in his life um set up the kids um he's now got you know an even nicer house um and he can focus on his consulting business so it's actually and 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 a third of the time he spends uh going around the world sailing uh, competing in sailing competitions which is his passion and he can do that now um, because we sold that business for him, you know, and, and got him a good price and he's got the cash in the bank and he does not need to worry about that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of set up his life for the future. Um, you know, a, a later sort of uh, party we work with um, had set up their own business um, uh, in industrial services. Uh, they had sort of struggled to finance it, um, you know, over many years. Uh, they had loans from friends and family. They had Scottish Pacific lending to them. They got the ATO knocking on the door. Uh, and, and they were probably six months from, you know, receivership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet they'd got a very strongly growing business. Um, and a lot of people had put money on the line and mm-hmm. they didn't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. So being able to help them to, you know, raise some debt and equity and help sell some of their shareholders out that had backed them along the line and allow the CEO to keep a material stake in the business um, transformed a lot of people's lives. All Mm -hmm. of a sudden, they didn't have this millstone of massive debt from numerous parties hanging over their heads. Um, They could focus on, you know, going into the office every day and growing the business and not worrying where the next cent was going to come to come from to actually pay the employers. Um, and, and so that, that was sort of transformational as well. And um, um, uh, because I'm not that familiar with your space, I'm certainly familiar with being an owner of a business that mm. struggles, struggles with cash flow. Uh being, uh, you know, costly at the forefront of my mind. Don't see this money come in one hand, it goes out the other. And it, it just seems like a, uh, it, it's, uh, it's so um, distracting for owners, uh, particularly owners like me who, you know, much more prefer to be out shaking hands and kissing babies and doing sure. deals and then paying bills and, you know, making sure the tax office pays and so on. So what number of these sort of transactions or clients would you, you know, successfully work with, say, in a year? Um, we wouldn't do many transactions in a year. Uh, we would do less than half a dozen. Right. Uh, so that they do tend to be, you know, relatively sort of long-term, maybe mm-hmm. three to six months. Mm-hmm. And so you get to know the people involved, you know, in great detail. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of live through the highs and the lows. You're, uh, you know, some, it's, it's like being on the battlefront sometimes. Um, you're shoulder to shoulder with them trying to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, you know, it's in a high stress situation where, you know, you might have two bidders bidding against each other. You're trying to squeeze an extra couple of million dollars out of them. And, and obviously that's, you know, really sort of, you know, stressful in terms of being negotiations. The other side might threaten to pull out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've, <laughs> you know, and if you're the owner of that business, all of a sudden from being on the high of, oh, I'm just going to make X number of million dollars, then the other side pulls out tactically. You've then got to kind of uh, be a bit of a man manager as well and sort of just say, well, it's part of the game and, and, and leave it to me. Um, just trust me that I know what I'm doing because I've had experience doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they do. Um, but because, you know, I, I do this sort of, you know, every day of my life. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be the owner of a business when you're selling um, and everything, you know, is on the line um, and, and riding the roller coaster of emotions that goes with that whole cycle um, would actually be, you know, very hard, which is why, you know, people like me um, get involved to help them because, uh, you know, we can take that load off their shoulders. It sounds like you almost become their, uh, their coach and psychologist and best friend. You, you do need to because you need to um, you need to work with them. I mean, you have to upfront be very clear about what their objectives are, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't know their own objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that might be when they're selling a business or when they're looking to buy a business or when they're you know raising funding. You've got to really nut down into what are your objectives so that I can deliver on that. And mm-hmm. sometimes there's a lot of teasing out of that. Um, and, and then it's managing, you know, expectations through the process. As, as I mentioned earlier, I, I don't manage in the sense of, um, you know, tell you something and then manage you down like you might do, you know, mm-hmm. real estate agents obviously get a very bad name for that. Um, I, I try to be very consistent, but also very handholding in terms of the emotional roller coaster that, um, you know, parties go through when they're doing these transactions which might only be once every two or three years mm-hmm. so they're just not familiar or used to them mm-hmm. and what uh five years down the track now when you look back at you know man i, I was at macquarie for 13 years and mm. uh you know cimb i've been in these massive organizations driving you know no doubt big teams and huge mm. budgets and so on and now you know you've got your own business as you said you've got a couple of sort of um uh associates that you work with what would you say you found most surprising about how you adapted from going from the macquarie machine or the cmb machine now into conquest uh you know how, how have you felt psychologically about that look I've, I've actually felt fine because i've always been somebody that um even within Macquarie and CIMB, I didn't really rely on the brand name to actually bring work into mm. me. I've always been somebody that's rolled the sleeves up, made contact, and in essence, you know, won the work myself. Um, and so I felt very confident going out and setting up my own business that I could do that myself because mm. you're basically looking to leverage your own reputation and your skill base. Um, obviously, when you don't have 
a McCoy brand name behind you, then um, you have to work sort of five times as hard. Um, but to me, that's, uh, you know, that's just a challenge of getting out mm. there, wearing out shoe leather and mm. uh, demonstrating to people the value can add to them, mm-hmm. um, which is I, obviously I, harder. Well, there's that element, but there's also the element of, you know, uh, obviously working for yourself. And as we are both working for ourselves at home at the moment, obviously mm. due to COVID and people adopting Zoom. So what, what if you found, you know, from a, just a socialization or, you know, um, being part of big teams. You know, I know a lot of people that they exit these huge organizations and they go, oh man, it's just so lonely. I just so miss being part of a big leadership yeah. team and I want to go back. And other people, they get into their own gig like I have and um, and they go, man, I couldn't even imagine working in a big business anymore. Um, uh, look, look, the politics in some of those organizations are the things that I didn't enjoy, mm. um, you know, in terms of the sharp elbows and, you know, to be frank, probably wasn't my forte anyway. Um, I, I was more focused on the clients and winning work and executing mm. transactions than playing mm. the corporate game, climbing the ladder that way. Mm. So from that point of view, I was ran relatively small teams of five to 10 people within Macquarie or CIMB. So I don't see that in a sense as any that much different, really. I mean, you know, there's a handful of people that work with me now, but the team sizes, they are smaller. Um, but I've always sort of had a similar team structure whereby, uh, you know, when I go out and work with a client, I roll my sleeves up and get involved. I don't mm. sort of pass over to someone else. So from that point of view, um, I've got a lot more control um, of, of the clients I work with. I've always focused more on um, mid-market type clients as opposed to the very largest of clients, sort of the ASX 50, um, although I have had a, you know, a couple of those clients. Mm-hmm. And so for me, maybe it's not so much a, uh, you know, a juxtaposition as it would be for other people. Sure. And so the transaction, uh, so the transition has actually been, you know, relatively smooth. I mean, I was fortunate um, when I left CIMB, um, there were a couple of roles uh, with one government entity um, and and also, uh, well, and also West Farmers that sort of, you know, wanted me to continue to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of helped the transition into a new business. It wasn't as if I was actually, uh, you know, going out and having nothing to do and twiddling my thumbs all of the time. Um, and, and part of that sort of working with those kind of organisations encouraged me to um, take the leap and, you know, do it myself mm-hmm. uh, and, and then, you know, build my own small business um, as opposed to going back and trying to work in a big corporate again where you sort mm. of get lost. Looking to the future now, John, uh you know, you've broken the back of five years of your own business and also mm. seen it successfully through what has been a very, very challenging year of 2020 for many people. Yeah. When you, when you look out to the future now, what are you envisaging for your business? Um, I, I am envisaging maybe in the next five years it doubling in size, mm-hmm. maybe five, you know, five to ten people, but I'm not envisaging it taking it a lot further. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think uh, there is a real risk if you become sort of a mid-size player, um, you start to get some of the overheads and structures, um, you know, that are relatively costly. 
but without having the benefits of larger players. And so mm-hmm. you're trying to compete with some of the large players with a lot of the disadvantages. Mm-hmm. So I'd much, I would be much, I'd much rather have a smaller business which is nimble. I can choose, you know, who I want to work with um, and, and not feel obliged to take on roles that I don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and and therefore work with people of a similar mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of, you know, some organic growth. I mean, I, I think there are opportunities to, uh, you know, wh- wh- one of the things that we would like to do, um, you know, going forward uh, is particularly work with clients and have long-term relationships along a journey. So, for example, clients that, you know, want to grow, they might want to acquire businesses um, and need, and equity funding i mean the panacea would be working with a client say for five years to grow that kind of business um help them in you know numerous aspects of what they're doing strategy acquisition funding um and and then potentially exit or refinancing after that period of time Um, and we've always taken a view that you know we're quite keen to be um you know aligned to the valuation value creation that that sort of um you know, creates for the client, um, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe having some equity in the business, um, you know, having our remuneration very much tied to creating value for that client um, and and looking to be a long-term partner of select clients as opposed to, you know, being very transactional. Mm -hmm. So, so, and I think about that within the business as well. I mean, so um, working with, you know, partners that can be complementary, that we work together, um, can bring a lot of different skills and expertise and relationships to businesses, mm-hmm. uh, but people who I would loosely, and, and I, I use this as a bit of a test, uh, it's sort of like the Sydney Swans having, uh, as they did in the premiership teams, uh, what they loosely call a no-dickhead policy. <laughs> um, and so that, that's the kind of the, the test to people we work with. That's such an Aussie expression, isn't it? Very Aussie expression, but I think it encapsulates it very well. Oh, for sure. In fact, I used that exact expression yesterday uh, <laughs> when a, a member of my team was saying that, oh, we should bring this person in. I went, oh, okay, well, do they pass the no dickhead policy, right? Uh, so exactly. there you go. And, and, uh, and uh, although I'm surprised you've used a... Uh, an AFL reference rather than a cricket reference. Yeah, well, it's 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 a very good reference. I couldn't think of one that's <laughs> particularly sort of right. uh, Australian cricket. If I if I do, I'll uh, I'll use that instead. Fair but, enough. And uh, have you uh, been a sort of a continuing player of cricket right through your uh, your adult years, or did that sort of fade away? Well, look, when you have young kids, um, you know playing cricket sort of took up most of the day I was playing lower grades for a while um and you know that you know that 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 would take up sort of every Saturday and so I did sort of have a 15 year hiatus until my uh second wife uh very encouragingly and supportingly said um you should go and take up sport Mm -hmm. um I had done I had done five years of marathon running. And so uh, I did seven marathons um, over that time. Um, and, and then when I achieved a personal goal, I, I was like, part of the pr- ma- marathon running, as <coughs> my brother-in-law said to me one time, is actually a journey. Right. Um, the right. easy part the easy part is running the marathon, Right. Um, which it took me a while to digest. The hard mm. part is doing 
the three hour runs every week for six months to get yourself in shape to be able to do the marathon. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the challenging part of our running marathons, mm. actually the training, not the race. Mm. Um, so when I decided I didn't want to invest in uh, training anymore for marathon running, I, I did sort of have a couple of years where I was wondering what to do. And then my wife said, you should go and enjoy, you should take up your passion again, go and play cricket. And so uh, I joined my local side um i'm playing lower grades i'm the opening bowler uh you know i've had i'm now in my sort of third season um I, i've sort of volunteered and joined the board as a as the treasurer to bring mm -hmm. some of my finance skills there and, and i'm absolutely thoroughly loving it um you know uh it, it is it is challenging with a four-year-old mm -hmm. uh but my wife and my daughter are very supportive um and you know it, it just gives me a buzz to be on the cricket pitch to be honest I, I i love playing the game and i also i've always loved the ethos of cricket and um you know you can play hard but at the end of the day uh everything is very respectful and fair mm -hmm. um and you know it's just got a great spirit to the game unless you're a crazy sledger and uh you know you're a ball tamperer <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not that's not us. I, I won't go into Australian cricket and ball tampering. It's probably not where you want to go. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's, it's interesting because my passion, you know, when I finished high school, I wanted to be a rock and roll star, and I toured sure. for four years playing in bands, and then I went back to uni and I played in bands right through, you know, and I've just had a three-year hiatus from playing in bands because of business and because I've broken both of my arms in the last two years. And uh, mm. last night I had my first band rehearsal in three years. Uh, and I just How'd went, it go? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, it was just blowing out the cobwebs and getting excited because, man, you, you can just literally, as a business owner particularly, you can lose yourself in your business and then suddenly you go, wow, how many hours did I work this week? Uh, well, I'm doing 14 hours a day five and a half days a week it, and it's gone so yeah. unless you take that time um to do something that you do it not because you really have a goal like running a marathon just because you just want to have a game of cricket or yeah, well or jam well, with some mates whatever well the goal this year is to win the premiership because uh we, we had a good side last year and uh, we got through to the grand final and on the Thursday before the grand final, COVID hit. And mm -hmm. uh, because we had finished fourth in the table, we were deemed to have lost the grand final. And so right. we have uh, unfinished business this year. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. So uh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, John, uh, so just two things to, um, to finish out. One is if there are people who listen to this and uh, – they think, oh, I think John could really help me with my business or my sale or whatever sure. it might be. What What's the best way for them to connect with you? Is it just reach out to you via LinkedIn or or do you have a process? So so, so LinkedIn, um, phone number, um, email, all of which is on the website, conquestcapitalgroup.com.au. Um, and be very happy to just, um, you know, have a chat to them about, their objectives, the issues they're facing with the business um, and, and have almost like a, a verbal whiteboarding session, mm -hmm. which might help to bring some clarity to what they're thinking about and give them a strategy for getting out of whatever issue they're in. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great, John. And look, certainly if anybody reaches out to me, 
uh, and they'd like an introduction to John, I'd be very happy to facilitate that. Last question from me. We first met probably about nine months or so ago when you joined the Champions Forums that I run. Um, I'd just yes. be interested in you sharing a little bit about your experience in Champions Forum and, um, you know, what you've gotten out of it. Um, Ch Champions Forum, to me, um, sort of keeps you honest. Um, and it, it really, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people, um, men and ladies, who who can provide you sound advice um, and also challenge you and help, in, and help get your thinking straight. Um, so before this discussion we had, I think I mentioned today's session that we had, Richard. Um, and, you know, it's I, I, initially when I started doing this sort of six, nine months ago, I found it quite challenging um, being in front of, you know, a dozen people. Uh, talking about issues within the business and vocalising them. And, you know, I'm, I'm very used to, you know, public speaking where you can uh, set something up and just talk, uh, in, you know, in front of a few hundred people, that's fine. But actually talking about issues and then, um, you know, being able to debate, debate them with effectively a board of people that can challenge you um, and hold you to account in subsequent meetings, um, I found extremely challenging, but from that point of view, uh, I, I've sort of really thrown myself into it and, you know, would encourage people to join up because, uh, you know, you, you do initially get out of your comfort zone, um, but I think it's a very worthwhile exercise. You, you basically get out what you put in. Yeah. Um, okay. if, if, if you're open and, and are willing to have discussions and be honest and seek advice and listen, to constructive advice, I think mm. you'll get a lot of value out of it. Mm. Uh, the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, being held accountable for what you have promised to do within your own business on a monthly basis is a very good discipline. Um, and, and, you know, I've got a list of things I need to do for X month. <laughs> um, and, and aside of being accountable to my partners, I'm also accountable to the Champions Forum for progressing some of those as well. And, uh, and I know if I haven't progressed them, um, I will get called out. Well, uh, you know, it's really scary, and it's there's all this accountability and stuff. But it's all, I, when you agree, it's a good John, discipline. And and and, 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 and the other thing I would say is, I know from my own point of view, um, I do cross training twice a week, mm -hmm. um, and I know. And, and one thing I've done for seven or eight years is book cross training in as a meeting in my diary, so that my EA mm -hmm. can't override it. Mm -hmm. Because I know that's the only way that I will be disciplined enough to do that training. Yeah. Um, being held to account by a peer, a peer group of people um, that say, well, you didn't turn up, what's going on? And don't, so, you, don't you also think that, John, that it's wonderful to see everybody thriving together? You know, absolutely. Um, you know, for those people who aren't familiar, Champions Forum, you're in a bunch of non compete peers business owners, CEOs, C-suite executives and so on. And what, what I've found amazing, uh, having done this now for a long time, is everybody is everybody rises. It's not like people come into a group and within three or four months, you know, John and Fred are kicking ass and, you know, the rest of the people are left behind. Everybody, almost by osmosis, everybody rises. Everybody's business mm. improves. Everybody has more fun at work. And um, it's awesome. Uh and, you know, John 
you you've made such a valuable contribution, which I really wanted to thank you for. And uh, thank you. And uh, I'm really pleased to have had this opportunity to have a chat and uh, have a fantastic week. Thanks, Richard. And look, I really appreciate the opportunity to have a discussion with you as well. And thank you for setting up and hosting the Champions Forum. It's uh, you know it's a wonderful arena, and you know I think people get a lot out of it. Oh, good on you, John. Well, uh, talk soon. See you soon. See you soon. Thanks, Richard. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Trinks. If you'd like to accelerate your executive career journey, Richard invites you to join his CEO Incubator community on LinkedIn. Just search for CEO Incubator in LinkedIn groups and click on the Ask to Join button to apply. We'll see you in the community. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.